Well, a few years ago, I was um, looking through some old pictures at my parents' house, and I ran across a photo from my four-year-old birthday party. And uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I looked at it, and a lot of stuff looked familiar, cake, ice cream, presents, all of that kind of good stuff. Uh, But what didn't look familiar to me were any of the people. Um, I looked at it and I thought, I don't know who these people are. And I, I asked my mom, who, who are these people? And she goes, well, those are your friends. And I said, these were not. I don't know who any of these people are. Like, you know, was I just really unpopular? And you went out and you're like, hey, here's 20 bucks to bring your kid to my kid's four-year-old birthday party. You know, like uh, I knew nobody uh, that I recognized at that party. And it made me, it made me kind of think, about the fact that when we are young, when you're really small, pretty much your parents are responsible for choosing your friends, right? Your friends uh, come from their circle of friends. And so if they have other friends from church or from your school or whatever, they invite those kids to your party and you may not have chosen them. It's not like you experienced some deep affinity with this other four-year-old and you're like, yeah, we like to talk about books and all kinds of stuff. And so they invite them to your party. Uh, You usually uh, go with the flow, whatever your parents choose. But at some point in your life, that changes. Uh, There becomes a point in your life where you start to say, I want to make my own friends. And you begin to try to choose friends and having friends that you connect with, being liked, uh, being popular perhaps becomes important to us. Uh, For me, I can remember that happening. I can remember that transition happening uh, when I was in about fourth grade. We moved from out of state to Dallas, and I went to a new school, new people, and I I really distinctly remember the very first day, we came in about six weeks into the year, and the teacher assigned us a project to draw a picture of some sort of outdoor scene with people and the sun and trees and all that kind of stuff. And she said, I want you to fill the page. I don't want you just to draw your picture in the corner. And so I did that. I drew this picture that filled the page, except I'm a terrible artist. And so uh, I had these huge, freakishly large people and these little trees and just kind of, it just looked like a a terrible, scary scenario, you know. And so uh, we put it up there. Everybody has their art up there. And I remember as other kids would walk around and they looked at all of the artwork, first day at school, I remember kids stopping and they would laugh at my picture. And I was about eight years old, nine years old, and I'm not making this up. I went home and I cried about it. And you're thinking, this is the saddest sermon I've ever heard, right? I went home and I cried about it because, not because I thought I was a great artist, but because I wanted to fit in with these kids. And I remember at that moment, uh, nine years old maybe, making this decision that my goal in life is that I'm going to be liked. I'm going to be popular. I'm going to have friends. And it may be that you went through something similar. Maybe that you were always in the popular career, maybe that you never were, maybe that sometimes you were, sometimes you weren't. Uh, but I think all of us go through this stage where we say, I want to be liked, I want to be popular. And that continues often well into adulthood. And I think the basis of that is actually not a bad thing. We, you and I have been created to be social. We've been created to need other people, to interact with other people. In fact, uh, the very first time you hear God say in the Garden of Eden that it's not good, it's not good for what? For the man to be alone. That's why he creates a wife for him. Now, I think that principle is broader than just marriage. It's not good for us to be alone. Uh, We need friends. I think that that idea is what drives Facebook drives Twitter, drives a lot of social media, is that on some level, we want to connect with people. And now it's possible that Facebook 
makes us have to pull back and think about who really is a friend to me, right? If you have 1,700 friends on Facebook, that stretches the traditional boundaries of what was considered friendship, right? A friend may have meant a lot of things, but not like kid who beat me up in third grade that now is on my newsfeed, right? And so uh, you and I have to rethink a little bit what is a friend? And I think that the scripture has a lot to say. We're going to look at the book of Proverbs as we've been doing this whole summer. And this morning, what we're going to talk about is this idea of what does it look like to have friends? What does it mean to be a friend? Uh, Why does that matter in my walk with Jesus Christ? To have friends that challenge me to know him. A few passages from outside the Proverbs uh, as we begin. Hebrews 10, a passage y'all are probably familiar with. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the context of Hebrews, the author is challenging these people not to walk away from their faith in Christ. And he says, let's hold fast this confession that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Now notice one of the critical pieces of that is that they keep meeting together in community. If you try to live the Christian life all by yourself in a room with your Bible and just praying and never interacting with other Christians, you will fail. Because we need community to press us toward Jesus Christ. We see that through the scripture over and over and over again. Not only do friends that know Jesus push us to know him better, they also have a very practical value. They ease our passage through life. They remind us of the good things that God has given us. They provide us with joy. Um, A lot of studies show that having good friends lowers your blood pressure, reduces the chance that you're going to have all kinds of depression and psychological disorders. It actually helps to have people who care about you. Ecclesiastes chapter four says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. In other words, there's practical benefits as well to walking through life with people who know us, who care for us, who are loyal, who take care of us. So friendship is significant, even from a biblical perspective. We also become like those people that we spend time with. Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen, a famous proverb. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. All right, you take two pieces of iron and you hit them together. Uh, they are going to transform in contact with one another. Now, that might be good. It might be that you're making a tool and you need it to be sharp. And so the iron will sharpen that tool and hone it into what it's going to be. That's what this proverb is talking about. But it also could be bad, right? If you take that metal and you slam it against something else, you could break a tool in half, right? So the type of contact that we have with other people will transform us, will change us. If you believe that you are not susceptible to peer pressure, you're kidding yourself. And I don't care if you're 12 or if you're 52. If you believe you're not susceptible to what other people think, if you're not susceptible to the ideas and actions of those around you, you're kidding yourself. We all are. We all change in response to those around us, right? Uh, Some of us have seen people who uh, look like their pets, right? You've seen people who, uh, there was a cat food actually that did a contest for people to send in pictures for people who look the most like their pets. And here were some of the winners. Uh, This lady um, 
It's really kind of scary. It's actually uncanny. Uh, this guy here, actually. Okay. Now, the reason I show you that is we go, okay, if, if you begin to change and look like an animal after a while, how much more so will you internally begin to take on the characteristics of the people that you spend time with? We've all seen married couples that uh, they look alike, they dress alike, they have the same uh, reactions to things. Often my wife and I, we've been married now for 13 years. Often uh, I find, or 12 years, 12 and a half, almost 13. Okay. I find us, uh, I know, I know when our anniversary is. Okay. I find us often uh, saying the same things at the same time. It happens every day because over time we begin to think alike. We begin to speak alike. That happens as you spend time with your friends. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So our friends will change our outlook on life. They affect how we view Jesus, how we view the word of God. They affect small things. Uh, what kind of coffee we like, what kind of ice cream we eat, how we dress, how we think, right? They affect everything about our life. And I think for most of y'all, you're in a stage of life. And actually, I was talking with my wife, Shannon, about this just a few weeks ago. You're at a stage of life where you will develop some of the friendships that will be your lifetime friendships, A lot of studies have shown that in the first six weeks of college, most people develop friendships, the ones that are going to last them through college and even into the rest of their life. And I can say that the guys that I roomed with, spent time with, knew in college, uh, many of them are still, to this day, my very best friends, the ones that I trust, that I go to for advice and counsel, that help me walk with the Lord, right? And so you're developing those friendships. And so the question becomes, uh, what kind of friendships are you developing What does the Bible say about the kinds of people that we want to spend time with? And then what kind of friend are you? Are you the kind of friend that is loyal, trustworthy, will push people to know Jesus Christ or not? So we're going to look at the Proverbs a little bit more this morning and ask that question and uh, keep those questions in your mind. Who are my friends? Do I need to rethink some of my closest relationships, right? Because we all are going to spend time with a lot of different people. You'll have acquaintances in your life. You'll have uh, acquaintances and those that you know that are Christians, non-Christians, and you should be interacting with all kinds of people. But who are the people that are your closest friends? And do they draw you close to Jesus Christ or push you further away? Do you draw them close to Jesus Christ or pull them further away? So that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes from Proverbs. What does it say about uh, friendship? What does a good friend look like? All right, first of all, a good friend encourages godliness. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Good friend encourages godliness. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Uh, It's no secret that you actually often can tell what kind of person somebody is by their friends. Not necessarily by the way their friends dress, not necessarily by the things they say, but if you watch people and you see the types of interests that they have, the level of maturity they have, often mature people, wise people hang out with other wise people. Immature people hang out with other immature people. It's, it's as simple as that. And again, we are all susceptible to pressure from others. There's a famous experiment that was done uh, several decades ago. It's called the Ash Conformity Experiment. What they did, uh, they got a room full of people who were supposed to take a test. And it was an easy test. They would give them questions like this one here. They'd say, which of those lines, A, B, or C, is the same length as the line on the left? Right? If you said C, you're right. Uh, If you said one of the other ones, uh, you may need to 
Do a little bit of work, right? A little bit of math work, right? It's an easy, obvious question. Now, what they found, if we got six or seven of us sitting in a room together, as long as most people answer the question correctly, you're going to say the right answer almost every time. Uh, Even if, say, three quarters of the room says the wrong answer, but a couple of people say the right answer you're probably going to be emboldened to say the right answer, even if other people are saying it wrong. But what they did is they get one guy in a room, the other six or seven were in on this experiment, and they instructed the other six or seven people to answer the question wrong. All right, so you're sitting in the room, they say, which one of those matches? And you look at it immediately, you go C, but everybody else in the room says B. And you're looking at it and you're going, what is it that I'm missing that I don't know? And what they found was at least 70 to 80% of the participants would change at least one answer. The first time it happened that everybody was wrong, most people would stick with what was right, right? The second, third, fourth, fifth time that everybody gave the wrong answer, this guy began to feel this pressure of something's wrong with me, right? If I don't answer it correctly, right? And these weren't 12-year-olds. These were full-grown adults with college degrees. And what they found is that the level of external influence on your life over time, it affects you. Now think about the friends that you have. If they are pressuring you to walk away from God, you may be able to resist that for a day, a week, a month, but eventually it's going to wear down your defenses, right? On the other hand, if they're constantly pushing you to know Jesus, that's going to affect you as well. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 gives a particular illustration related to anger. Don't associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. In other words, if I'm around angry people, I'm going to become an angry person, right? So I spend a whole lot of time uh, on blogs and on Facebook arguing with people angry things. I'm going to become an angry person. If I'm around gossips, I'm going to become a gossip. If I'm around drunkards, I'm probably going to become one. All right, if I'm around people who constantly devalue marriage and insult their spouse, the odds are I'm going to pick up those sorts of attitudes and behaviors as well. No matter how strong I think I am internally, the people I spend my time with will shape and develop who I am. All right, if I'm around godly people who walk with Jesus Christ, that's going to facilitate my becoming a godly person who walks with Jesus Christ. Some of the worst decisions that I have made in my life have been because of friends that pushed me in the wrong direction. I'll never forget years ago, while I was uh, in seminary, I had a friend from childhood that I reconnected with. And uh, as I sat down and reconnected with this guy that I knew from high school, I found that whenever I was around this guy, uh, I became sarcastic and cynical and critical of everything around because he was. And then as soon as I would leave his presence, I was like, why was I talking that way? Why was I acting that way? Why was I thinking that way? And I found I had to put a little bit of distance in that relationship because who I became when I was with that person wasn't who I wanted to become. And it was easier for him to pull me down than for me to pull him up. On the other hand, some of my best decisions have been made with wise, godly counsel. Men who care about me and they love Jesus and they want to help me walk with him. A lot of times I'll talk with college students who are struggling in a particular area of their life, uh, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's alcohol, whether it's just I can't seem to walk with the Lord and connect with community. And sometimes I find that the very first thing they have to do is rethink their living situation. 
Because I've talked with guys and girls who uh, they say, I just have a really hard time. For example, let's just say I have a really hard time with alcohol. And I go, well, tell me a little bit about your living situation. Well, every night my roommates have an alcohol party and they're getting drunk and they're offering it to me. And, uh, you know, I try to resist for a while, but I can't, right? Because it's happening right there all the time. Uh, guys, perhaps, who are struggling with pornography, they say, well, yeah, every day my roommate's just looking at it all the time, and he's got pictures of uh, scantily clad women all over the walls, and I don't know why I'm struggling with this issue. It's because you're constantly around people who are pushing you the wrong direction. And so sometimes it requires a change in circumstances or setting. Sometimes it just requires seeking out friends who will hold you accountable and push you to know Jesus, even though you live in an immoral culture. So a friend, biblically, is someone who encourages you to walk with the Lord. Secondly, a friend is somebody who is trustworthy, can be trusted. And two particular ways in which they can be trusted. All right, the first one uh, is this. They can be trusted to keep secrets. Can be trusted to keep secrets. Now that sounds interesting. You're like, why do I want somebody who can trust, I can be trusted to keep secrets? And here's what I see biblically is that the fabric of Christian community depends upon trust, right? Because if I'm going to share with you in, um, in making disciples, if I'm going to participate with you in sharing the gospel, I have to be able to trust you. I have to know that you have my best interests at heart, that you care about me and that you want the best for me and you want me to know Jesus. And so if I can't do that, then it's going to be hard for us to participate in the task of making disciples together. So a good friend is someone who can be trusted, first of all, to keep secrets. Look at a couple of passages. Proverbs eleven thirteen. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals the matter. All right, this is talking about this particular passage is talking about the malicious slanderer. Right, we all know somebody like that. That their goal in life is to embarrass you. So if they find out that you still wet the bed, they're going to tell everybody they know. Right? They find out that you watch uh, the Bachelor while eating Cheetos in bed. Uh, they're going to tell everybody they know, right? They're going to do it to embarrass you. Everybody knew somebody like that in elementary school or junior high or high school, that their goal was to try to tell secrets that would embarrass another person. If you confided in that person that you had a crush on someone of the opposite sex, uh, you were dead, right? The whole school was going to know it because they wanted you to feel ashamed. That's the talebearer. And the scripture says, avoid the talebearer, stay away from him because rumors can destroy a person. If you are a talebearer, consider that. That the things you say about another person, true or not, can destroy a person. And what somebody tells you in confidence, for the most part, ought to stay in confidence to protect trust. I realize there are exceptions. There may be exceptions if a person is in imminent danger of harming themselves or another person. But I think a lot of times we are all too eager to share another person's secrets without thinking about it, right? Uh, Maybe we do it as a prayer request, right? Pray for this person because he's just really angry, bitter person. He struggles with that. And he told me, and I need all of you to know it and pray for it, right? That's not a prayer request, is it? That's gossip. So the scripture says, stay away from both the malicious gossip, but also the person who is, uh, it says, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. This is actually talking more about the careless gossip. This is the person who just can't help it, right? You tell them something and it's like there's this direct line from their ear to their mouth. Like they just cannot filter out information. That's the gossip. All right, so this is the person that you tell them that you have a hidden rash, 
and they just have to tell everybody, right? They can't keep it in. And so everybody knows about it, not because they're malicious, but just because they have no filter. It says, look, don't associate with that person. Avoid that person. A good friend can be trusted to keep secrets. Are you a good friend? That when somebody tells you something in confidence, you're a tomb, a crypt. It goes in, it doesn't come out. Right? And I think a lot of times what we do also is we go to a person and we say, don't tell anybody this, right? But so-and-so told me, right? And so what happens then is you've spread it. They're going to go to the next person and say, don't tell anybody this. But, and it becomes a chain of all the don't tell anybody's, right? Because everybody thinks the person they tell can be trusted. Good friend can be trusted to keep secrets. Good friend can also be trusted to speak truthfully to us as well. Not only to keep secrets, but to speak the truth. Proverbs 27, 6 and 9. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That's Proverbs 27, 6. And then verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. All right, two things I see. The counsel here is both honest, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, there are people in my life that can tell me you're not doing that correctly, right? Just this week, I had a friend sit down with me and say, there's an area of your life, of your work, in which I see you're not doing 100% of what you could be doing. You're failing here. Right now, I could get angry at that, but it's somebody that I trust, somebody that I care about, that I know cares about me. And that's the wounds of a friend. Immediately, it You want to be defensive, right? But it says faithful, trustworthy are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The person who constantly says, ah, you're great. You don't need to change. You're perfect. That's the kisses actually of an enemy, even though they may be saying it under the guise of friendship. A true friend is somebody who knows you and cares for you well enough to say, there's an area in which you need to grow, an area in which you need to change. And yet, man's counsel is sweet to his friend. It's also kind. Oil and perfume. People would wear oil and perfume to keep their skin soft, right? Kind of like we use lotion today. Perfume would obviously make them smell nice, so it was sweet, pleasant. That's the idea. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so does a man's counsel. In other words, true counsel from a friend is honest and kind at the same time. I used to watch sometimes American Idol. Uh, I I don't watch it as much anymore. But uh, one of the things that you'd see on that show is uh, you had some people who were overly kind, right? Back when Paula Abdul was on the show, uh, she thought, hey, everybody was great, right? She usually would not tell anybody if they couldn't sing. Then you had Simon that would say, not only can you not sing, you're just a horrible human being, right? You may as well crawl into the depths of the earth and die because you can't sing, right? And so that was his way of giving what he considered honest feedback. And biblically it says, now we're somewhere in between. Some people would go on that show and it was clear that for their whole life they've not been able to sing. They can't sing now, they never could sing, and yet nobody told them before they went on national TV. That makes me sad a little bit, right? Doesn't that make you sad? When you think, if you, if you say, hey, I'm going to try out for American Idol and you cannot carry a note in a bucket... You would hope that you'd have at least one friend that would say, hmm, don't do that, right? Bad idea. But would say it gently and kindly, right? Something like, you're really good at engineering, right? Maybe you should try that. <laughs> Not a career in music. And here's why, all right? So a good friend can be trusted to speak the truth and to speak it lovingly. All of us have probably had that experience where you go to a party or something, 
You're in front of a bunch of people and you find out later that there's something in your nose or coming out of your nose, right? Or in your teeth or coming out of your teeth or your zipper is undone and you get back home and you're like, how long has it been like that, right? Was it like that before I left? Why is it that nobody told me? You feel a little betrayed by everybody there, right? They've been watching you, seeing this humiliation, and nobody has told you. Uh, my wife, she doesn't pr- always like when I tell the story, but I do have her permission to tell it, is that uh, when we go places, she will often, after we eat, she'll say, is there anything in my teeth, right? And she'll go like this, and I look. And this is an important moment because uh, I have to give honest feedback, but I have to give it gently, Right? Say, yeah, there is, or no, there isn't. If we get home and there's been something in her teeth that I missed, uh, I'm not in a good place, right, at that moment, okay? Because a true friend will give you honest, helpful, and yet kind feedback, right? And we've all had that moment where someone pulls you aside and says, hey, go grab a tissue, right? And you're thankful for that, even though it may be a little embarrassing. So a good friend can be counted on, can be trusted, Thirdly, and not only can a good friend be trusted, but then thirdly, a good friend can be counted on. Right? This is slightly different from trust. What I mean by this is that when you need that person, they're there. Right? A good friend can be counted on uh, in times of adversity, in times of prosperity, in times of weakness, in times of strength. In other words, this is the person that uh, when you are on the side of the road stranded, you can call and you know they'll be there in a heartbeat. Proverbs 25, 19 says this, uh, like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in time of trouble. All right, think about that, a bad tooth. A bad tooth is one that uh, if you've ever had problem with your tooth or with your gums, you bite into an apple and that tooth doesn't do what it's supposed to do, right? It uh, crumbles underneath the weight or it hurts and it's no fun. And when you're a little kid, You lose a tooth, the tooth fairy comes and gives you a dollar or a quarter or whatever under your pillow. When you are older, that doesn't happen. Nobody gives you money for losing teeth. Uh, They give you surgery, right? Uh, It's not cool. You don't want a tooth that's going to fall out on you when you start eating. You want to be able to bite into that apple and know it's going to stay there, all right? An unsteady foot. If you've ever uh, had a knee or an ankle that was sprained or not working like it should, you know that it's a scary deal to be walking along and have that knee just give out, right? Or that foot just twist underneath you. You can't rely upon it. Uh, My grandfather, actually, when he was very young, he had two double uh, knee replacements. And as he got older, he would be standing. It could happen in the shower. It could happen in his house. And they would just buckle, right? Says that's what a faithless man is in time of trouble. Right when you need this friend, They're not there. And yet a good friend is the person that can be counted on even when you're down and out, even when you need help. You can call them at a moment's notice and you know that if at all possible, they'll drop what they're doing to help you. I was remembering this earlier this week that when I was in college, my sophomore year in college, um, I was dating a girl who lived in another town and I had known her from high school. And uh, one evening, some of my friends were out hanging out. I don't remember exactly what they were doing, but she uh, called on the phone. So we were going to talk. And uh, while we were on the phone, she broke up with me uh, on the phone from long distance. And we can get into that that whole thing another time. But uh, (laughs) so she breaks up with me and man, I'm just a wreck. And my friend, another friend who's here, he calls me and he says, Hey, are you going to come hang out with? I think we were actually like rollerblading or something. All right. This was the nineties. Okay. So he's like, "Uh, you want to come rollerblade with us? And I'm like, man, I just I can't do it right now. And, and he goes, what's wrong? 
And I said, well, this girl just broke up with me and I'm just, and he goes, I'll be right there, right? He left all his friends. He came over. He sat in my dorm room with me to hear me blubber. The guy is still one of my closest friends to this day because when I needed him, he was there. That's what a friend does. It is representative of the character of Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 18, 24. I, I love this passage and one that you're probably familiar with. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And ultimately, we want to be friends like that because it reflects the character of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Our Savior approached us in love and grace. When? Not when we were doing well, right? Not when we had it all together. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says that a person will hardly die for a good man, although for a good man, someone might even venture to die. But Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. When we needed him most, he gave his life, paid the penalty for our sin and rose again so we can have eternal life. I think Proverbs 18 is, uh, in a sense, a foreshadowing of the person of Jesus Christ. Man of too many friends comes to ruin. If you have a bunch of shallow relationships, right? 1,872 Facebook friends, but not a single one who knows you and cares for you. You'll come to ruin because no one's there when you need him. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And ultimately that friend is Jesus Christ. And we're called to be friends like that because that's the kind of friend that he is to us. Famous song by Eric Clapton, nobody knows you when you're down and out. In your pocket, not one penny. As for friends, you don't have any. Uh, When you get back up on your feet again, everybody wants to be your long lost friend. I said, it's mighty strange without any doubt. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. From the world's perspective, that's true, right? From the perspective of the scripture, Jesus Christ is there and has been there when we're down and out. So those who know him are called to reflect him by being people who can be trusted, people who draw others to know him as the ultimate friend and savior, and people who can be counted on. The type of people who will be there when someone is stranded on the side of the road, the type of people who will be there when a person is hurting and needs help and counsel or is depressed, the type of people who will love like Jesus has loved. That's biblically what friendship looks like. And so for just a moment, let's think about our own friends. Do you have friends who encourage you toward Christ-likeness? Think about your friends for a moment. And if you're honest, are they friends who challenge you to know Jesus Christ? That when you're in pattern of sin, they're willing to tell you the truth about that. They're willing to point you back to the word of God. They're willing to pull you into community with other believers. Do you have friends like that, that point you toward Jesus Christ? Or are your friends those who pull you away? Are the people you spend most of your time with that you confide in, that you care about, are they drawing you toward Jesus Christ? And then secondly, are you that kind of friend who encourages others to know Jesus and walk with him? encourages them toward Christ-likeness. I think we hear a lot of messages, especially in a college context, about dating and romance, and those are all great things and biblical things. And we talk about them here. We don't hear as much about how critical all of the other relationships are in your life. The friends that I made in college 
uh, the friends that I have now are a huge part, huge part of the reason that I'm walking with the Lord today. Huge part of the reason that I am, for what it's worth, the husband and dad that I am today, although I've got a long way to go. But the people that I know who have built into my life, who have challenged me to know Jesus, make a huge difference. Okay, that's also why, uh, by the way, just as a side note, that's why we come together face to face and sit in the same room and worship Jesus. Although I can listen to a message or a podcast online, I can't know people face-to-face who will challenge me to meet with Jesus that way. I can't really do that on Facebook in between all the memes and silly articles and cartoons and political opinions, right? Discipleship and growth requires us to meet together, to know one another, and to be the kind of friends to one another that Jesus Christ is to us. So do you have friends like that? Are you a friend? And then think through what, what is just the next step then that you may need to take in order to develop those kinds of relationships that reflect Jesus Christ. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we confess that we are often not the sort of friends we need to be because we are often looking to meet our own needs. We are often looking to just to have a good time, perhaps, or be liked or popular, and we're not thinking about friendship in the scheme of eternity. I pray you would help us to do that. Father, I pray that you would um, allow us to be the kinds of friends who can be counted on and trusted, kinds of friends who will draw others to Christ. Father, I pray we would find those friends as well. I know that there are people here that are just starting their college career, and there are also people here who are ending And uh, for all of them and those in between, I pray, starting now, you would give them opportunity to develop the kind of community that will let them walk with God for their life. Lord, I pray as they finish finals, as they go home and as they return, that each person would be faithful to the responsibilities and obligations you've placed in their path to know you and serve you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.